To our new passengers, aloha and welcome. As you board, please move across your car to make room for everyone, and kindly offer available seating to those needing special assistance. The show will begin momentarily. Thank you. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. Welcome to Dave's Disney View Podcast, provided on our own version of the information highway in the sky. For those of you standing, please hold on to the handrails throughout our journey and stay clear of the doors. For the comfort of others, no smoking please. Thank you. Dave's Disney View is a look at the Walt Disney World Resort and sometimes beyond, as seen through the eyes of Dave, a frequent visitor, a one-time cast member, and an engineer who simply enjoys the magic and wonder of it all. Now, please keep your party together and put on your virtual mouse ears. And by all means, enjoy the show. Good day, everyone. It's Dave again with another Dave's Disney View podcast. Today's podcast, what I'd like to talk about is uh, pin trading. A little bit about its history, how it works, and maybe share a few stories with you about pin trading. Now, for as long as I can remember, Disney has sold a form of pins. These pins included familiar characters as well as commemorations of specific events like the opening of Epcot, the opening of the studios, different events that were out there. Maybe a, a group or a large gathering was coming there uh, that was a big sponsor and they'd create pins for that. And that was always something that they would have available. And on a personal note, when I was a cast member, one of the things I actually didn't like doing was restocking the pins and other small jewelry items that were kind of uh, collapsed with it. So the story goes that the pins and those small jewelry items, like earrings and that sort of thing, would be delivered in a box from the central warehouse. There was really no rhyme or reason that I could decipher as to the quantities, the mix of the pins, or whether we would see any other in that day's orders. So you'd kind of get this box, and maybe there'd be a second box, and maybe not, and you'd kind of flip through it, and it'd be like a, just a stack of pins in there. Now, they had the, the uh, black backs, or they, maybe they were gray at the time, but they, had the, you know, they were stuck onto a, um, onto a little uh, holder so that you could put them on the racks. But otherwise, they were just sort of a hodgepodge of pins that were in there. And this was strictly an auto-replenish item. You didn't order these, they'd just come in. So we'd have to sort them and put them into a stock drawer along with the costume jewelry we'd sold in the Emporium. And when it came to putting them on the floor, it was always a pain. T-shirts, hats, mugs, and other items were large and easy to put out uh, and straighten up along the way. But pins were small and displayed on a single turning rack, and they're always mixed up. You know, you'd go out there to start stocking them, and some guest would have come through and gone, oh, I like this, and put it back in a different place. So you always had to kind of uh, deal with that along the way. So you had to be patient and rearrange them and replenish with whatever we had on hand. You might be down to the last one of a particular type of Mickey and have a completely different Mickey to replace it with. And I have to admit, I would get annoyed by this, and whenever I was doing floor stock, I would beg out of doing jewelry. I'd trade with someone to work anywhere else. Or a couple of times, I'd just replenish early in the night and, and then again at the end of the night and pretty much leave it alone otherwise. Yeah, I know, maybe that's not quite right, but it was the way I dealt with it. The pins in the jewelry section was a pain. I really never was a fan of uh, doing the pins, to be honest, but only because I didn't like stocking them. But they always sold well. Uh, they're easy to pack and can easily commemorate your visit. And Disney got this fantastic idea of expanding their pin collection for park guests, not to mention that it would prove to be a hugely profitable in endeavor. 
And I think that guests would generally agree this is an exciting addition. We'll talk about that more in a moment. Pin trading as you know it started out in the Walt Disney World Parks and Resorts as part of the Walt Disney World Millennium Celebration in October of 1999. As a way to commemorate the millennium with offerings from many Disney characters, each of the countries, and more offerings that were kind of unique. They sold so well that it spread it to every venue within the theme park division. It soon extended to the Disneyland and Disneyland Hotel in February of 2000 and to the Disneyland Resort and Paradise Pier and the Grand Californian Hotels with the opening of Disney's California Adventure in February of 2001 and then on to Tokyo Disneyland in January of 2001. And now you can even trade pins on the high seas on the Disney Cruise Line, the Disney Quest, and in Disney stores, and in many of the Disney vendors' uh, shops and uh, locations as well. Uh, Pins can literally be had at any Disney-related property these days. Now, the pins themselves are generally a a small, colorful collectible, crafted pieces of enamel or enamel cloisonne with a metal base. They have a pointed back that requires a clasp, and it's often a Mickey-shaped piece of rubber that they stick on there. Pins are available for a limited time, usually. The price for a pin is about $6.95. Limited edition pins and special pins, so ones that maybe have a dangle, a pin-on-pin flocking, uh, they're lenticular, they light up, they have a moving element or the 3D element or so on, can cost as much as $14.95. Featured artists or jumbo pins cost between $20 and $35, and there are super jumbo pins that are uh, special, and they cost somewhere beyond $75. Some pins have appreciated well on secondary markets outside of Disney and have reached prices of well over U.S. $500 uh, in places like eBay. Now, many thousands of unique pins have been created over the years, with literally hundreds produced on a monthly basis, with varying designs and addition sizes in order to keep the worldwide marketplace of voracious collectors uh, and traders happy. Pins are frequently released at special events, movie premieres, pin trading events, or to commemorate the opening of a a day of a a particular attraction, uh, opening day of a park, or so on. So now that we've laid out a general understanding of the business, let's take a look at the general pin information. There are a lot of considerations in evaluating a pin, and here are some things that you may want to know about pins. There are things called artist proofs that are created uh, during the manufacturing and to verify quality. They're called AP pins and uh, have AP stamped on their back. Some collectors value the AP pins above anything else. There's a back stamp uh, that contains information about the pin and can include the copyright information and the edition size. Uh, I mentioned dangle pins have an extension on the base uh, of the pin that dangles or hangs from one or more small loops or chains. There's an epoxy uh, coating that's a glassy, opaque substance that's used to uh, decorate and provide a protective coating on the uh, pins. When the coating dries, it forms a smooth, glossy surface. There's something called flocking, and a uh, flocking a pin means it has a fuzzy area on it, uh, so that's added something, some element that makes it a little fuzzy. There's hard enamel uh, that's sometimes called new cloisonne, and it retains the characteristics of the classic cloisonne, but also provides a much wider selection of colors. Cloisonne uh, has each pin is handcrafted in a process that begins with a flat piece of brass, which is dye-struck and then filled with enamel colors. The surface is then hand-polished to give it a smooth finish. I mentioned the word lenticular a few minutes ago. A lenticular pin has two or more images that can change when it's tilted back and forth. There are light-up pins that have a, uh, lights in their designs and that flash when activated. The light-up element has been used less in recent years due to the difficulties in the battery replacement and the metal corrosion. You'll also hear about pre-production or prototype pins. These types of pins are usually PP pins. 
um, and they're received by product developers prior to a pin being manufactured. These pins sometimes contain a little bit different coloring or some features that the final production pin does not have. The number depends on what the final product will be, as these pins may be different in size, texture, color, and so forth. The de developers use these to test pins to determine what the final product will be. Pins from late 2007 now will contain a PP stamp on the back. Pins prior to 2007 may uh, contain a Pro Products label signifying it's a pre-production pin. Some pins may contain no identification that it's a pre-production pin at all, and it may just be a different color or a slightly different texture than the other pins. There are also pins called scrapper pins uh, that's an unauthorized pin. Many of the molds Disney uses to make pins are not destroyed after the creation of the pin order, and bootlegs can be created. This practice has flooded the Disney park and parks and secondary markets like eBay with cheap imitations, mostly of cast lanyard pins and mystery release pins. Some are sold on eBay or found in the parks before the real pins are even released. So you want to be on the lookout for the scrapper pins because those are not official Disney pins at that point. There are also slider pins. A slider pin has a movable piece that slides back and forth across the base of the pin. There are spinner pins that have a spinning mechanism that moves the piece in a 360 degree motion. And finally, there are soft enamel pins that has the design stamped into a metal base. These pins are filled with enamel colors and baked for durability. The final clear epoxy dome is applied to protect the finish. Typically a thinner pin uh, than a cloisonne pin, these will uh, just have the colors baked into them. That should give you a little sense of the kinds of pins that are out there. I mean, there are many, many different pins, and when you as a guest are looking for pins, you may be looking for some particular feature within there, and that may help you to decide which of those pins you might be looking for. Now, as far as some of the terms that are exclusive to Disney pin trading, unlike other pins, there's a Build-A-Pin program that was introduced in 2002. Guests could personalize pin bases with character add-ons. After selecting their favorite base and add-on, the pin was assembled with a special machine. The Build-A-Pin program was retired uh, two years later in the summer of 2004. Continuing the pin trading tradition, also known as CTT, these annual pins were created for guest recognition by cast members. Guests may be awarded uh, continuing the pin trading tradition, PIN, for demonstrating positive Disney pin trading etiquette and promoting the Disney pin trading. There are fantasy pins. A pin is commissioned or produced by Disney pin collectors that contains similarities to Disney pins, but has not been created or endorsed by Disney. These pins are not allowed to be, allowed to be traded with cast members, although collectors may trade for these pins among themselves. From time to time, Disney will produce a pin that is very similar to a fantasy pin. There's a free D pin, that's free, D pin, that stands for a fastened rubber element on a pin for extra dimension. Pins that feature the free D elements sometimes have discoloring issues and an extra precaution should be taken to make sure the free D element is not dirtied. There's a gift with purchase or GWP pin that's a bonus given to guests who buy at least $25 of merchandise in one transaction. The Disneyland Resort designates the first Sunday of every month as GWP Sunday and has two collections each year of the six pins. The pins are often traded as lanyard fodder, and as a result, they're not valuable initially. While Disney World has promotions where GWPs are available for $1 each with a $30 purchase, you may see a promotion that involves surplus uh, mystery machine pins. You'll also see these types of gift with purchase pins show up at the Disney stores around the country. Uh, I think even now they're doing the promotion where you can get one if you uh, pay with your Disney Visa card. There are HHG, or Hitchhiking Ghost Pins, and they're the most famous residents of the Haunted Mansion. 
The HM will generally designate the Haunted Mansion or Hidden Mickey, depending on the context. I find it usually means Hidden Mickey, but it can mean Haunted Mansion as well. I talked a little bit about jumbo pins that are larger and more intricately designed than the regular uh, size pin. Uh, And as such, the pins tend to cost more, uh, and you'll see those uh, show up sometimes. The Mickey's Mystery Pin Machine. It debuted at the Mouse Gear in Epcot and Walt Disney World in late 2007. The machines were modified uh, Gravity Hill arcade machines that dispensed a pin regardless of outcome. The pins were part of a small collection consisting of only five pins each, and although the pins cost $5 and were distributed randomly, remaining pins were sold as a gift with purchase pins, and the machines have now been designated as inactive and removed. But it was something they were trying for a while to, uh, to get guests more interested in the pin trading experience. You'll see name pins that uh, have name engraved on them and may not be traded with cast members. The piece of history pins from the 2005 set is considered to be one of the rarest series in the Disney pin trading. Each pin contains a minuscule piece of a prop from a Walt Disney World attraction. The first pin series, the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea pin, with a sliver of a porthole, is sold for over $275 on eBay. The success of the series has led to a 2006 and 2008 and a 2009 and 2010 set for Disneyland Resort. Pin trading nights are monthly meetings of Disney pin traders at the Disneyland Resort, Walt Disney World, or Disneyland Paris resorts. The pin trading team provides pin games and gives traders the opportunity to trade and socialize. Often a limited edition pin is released to commemorate the occasion. You'll see rack pins that are often called uh, open edition or core pins, and they're pins that are introduced and sold until they are discontinued or retired. These pins are reordered for up to several consecutive years. The starting retail price is typically $6.95 on these pins, and they kind of fill in those uh, pins that go on for long periods of time. The random selection process is the method by which uh, limited edition pins are distributed at the pin events. Each guest submits a form which has slots for the limited edition merchandise that's offered. Each slot is filled in order based on pin availability. And there's a random draw on ensuring that the uh, guests have a fair chance at getting those random pins. Surprise or mystery pins are usually, fe- uh, usually feature a low limited si- edition size. Typically, the back stamp will include the word surprise pin. The release of this pin happens randomly at various merchandise locations within the Disney theme parks and resorts. Although surprise pins have continued at the Disneyland Resort, as evidenced by their current resort sign set, Walt Disney World releases surprise pins much more rarely. So the question is, which pins should you collect? You know, that's entirely up to you. I actually personally don't collect pins myself, but my boys do. They're interested in pirate themes, fireman themes, transportation, such as the monorail, Star Wars, and the Cars movie. But once in a while, something will catch their eye, and that's not among those, and they'll trade for them as well. Since I personally don't collect them, I actually just enjoy helping the boys find things that they like. And once in a while, I'll talk the boys into trading one of their pins for something that I like. Even though it goes into their uh, pin holder, uh, it's something that I'll enjoy looking at over time. Now, there are some general categories of pins, but remember, there are over 60,000 Disney pins available, and uh, many of them are common characters that you'd see. So the characters include, like, Mickey Mouse, Chip and Dale, Donald Duck, Goofy, Stitch, Jessica Rabbit, Figment, uh, and you'll primarily see him at Walt Disney World, of course, and Tinkerbell. The attractions will be for, like, Soren, It's a Small World, The Twilight Zone Tower of Terror, The Rock and Roller Coaster starring Aerosmith, The Haunted Mansion, and, of course, The Hitchhiking Ghosts, The Pirates of the Caribbean, Star Tours, The Adventure Continues, and The Monorail. The series that you look at uh, include the Cast Lanyard, now known as the Hidden Mickey series, Disney uh, Auctions, a limited edition of 100, the Piece of History pins, and the Soda Pop series. 
So as a result of all these pins, 60,000 pins out there, the pin trading hobby, and I put that in air quotes, has taken on a life of its own. Pin trading is a fun way to add a small, colorful, collectible, crafted piece of cloisonne to your collection. There are some rules and common sense and courtesy that should prevail. Most cast members and other guests are trading for fun and enjoy the interaction, and it should be treated as a friendly exchange. Nothing will turn a cast member or another guest into an ex-pin trader faster than a negative experience or a pushy trader. So between its introduction in 1999 and early 2002, the only way to trade pins was at a pin trading station or with other guests. I'll talk about the pin trading stations again in a minute, but this uh, interaction between the guests was really what Disney was starting with. But in 2002, Disney made a change and gave cast members in merchandise and and other areas cast lanyards. That means that the cast members were given about a dozen pins each, and the idea was to encourage guests to trade with cast members and foster interaction between them. And i got to tell you, as a former cast member, this is a really cool idea, and I would have loved to have been trading pins, but I worked there too early. And then later, Disney modified the pins slightly to add a hidden Mickey to the pin and referred to them as the Hidden Mickey Collection, and each year the cast members are given a new set of pins to trade. According to the pin team, the name change is based on the current identifier found on the Hidden Mickey pins, a small Hidden Mickey icon. Hidden Mickeys are also incorporated into many attractions and locations at Disney theme parks and resorts, as we know. We felt that this change would complement something fun uh, many guests were already seeking. And of course, here's where I have to insert a commercial message about a really great Hidden Mickey app that's available in the iTunes store. If you go out to uh, iTunes and look for Hidden Mickeys, you'll find mine. Or you can go through my website, uh, DisneyPodcast.net slash Hidden dash Mickey, and uh, find a link to the app directly from there. And of course, if you want to just have a mobile version that you can play around with a little bit uh, and take on your non-Apple phone, uh, you're welcome to uh, just have the mobile version there. Just head over to the same site and it will redirect you automatically to the mobile version. So now that we have some of the history, let's talk about how pin trading works. Most people use the uh, cast member to guest trade. It's a very easy to tell which cast members are taking part in the pin trading promotion as they wear their official pin trading lanyards or their hip lanyard, which is a 4x5 black card displaying, uh, displayed on their hip that has their, uh, their pins on it. And they'll be in costume and on stage with their name tag on. The lanyards will have 12 pins, and a hip lanyard will usually have 8. You're free to trade for any of these following some very simple rules. Number one, ask to see the lanyard or pins so they can bring it closer. Typically, they will hold the lanyard taut so you can see them, but remember to refrain from touching their lanyards or their pins. Select one pin at a time to trade. Guests can make up to two pin trades per cast member per day. The pin that is traded to the cast member cannot be a duplicate of any pin that they already have on their lanyard. Your pin must be made of metal and have a representation of a Disney character, a park, attraction, icon, or other official affiliation. Additionally, the pin must have the Disney copyright on its back. And no money can change hands on Disney property for ex- in exchange for a pin. And I should note that the rules are always subject to change without notice, and there may be a few additional rules at the Disney property you're visiting. For example, at Disneyland, there are some printed rules that don't exist at Disney World. Cast members are free to trade with any guest at any time during their shift. Often this isn't the only activity the cast member is responsible for during their day, and some common courtesies should prevail during the trades. If you see a pin that you want, but the cast member is busy loading an attraction, serving food, ringing up a sale, or helping another guest, let that cast member know that you'd like to trade with them and then wait for them to finish. Or get in line and let them do their job until they get to you. Cast members wear lanyards and trade pins because they want to, and are appreciative of traders who don't interrupt their other jobs. 
For me personally, another quick aside, we weren't planning on my daughter collecting pins until she turned four, but she was fascinated with her brother's pins as we were walking around uh, downtown Disney. Actually, she was doing it the whole time we were at Disney World, but she started to really take pay attention when we were at downtown Disney. Uh, and she would stop and look in everyone's lanyards, even though she wasn't planning on trading anything. And, of course, you know, here's a little girl walking up, and she wants to see the pins. So, of course, the cast members are going to, you know, bend over backwards to try and help her. And it turns out that while we were at Downtown Disney in the uh, World of Disney store, a very nice cast member named Jody decided to just give her a pin off her lanyard uh, so she could start trading. And, you know, my shout-out to Jody and her supervisor. Thank you so much. That was so sweet for her to do that. Um, and within about 10 minutes, my daughter had already traded it about six times. She was just so excited to be trading a pin. She was going from person to person. I'll oh, trade, 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 trade. And she was looking for characters that she recognized. And I think she wound up going home with a Tinkerbell. But that's irrelevant because uh, the concept of interacting with the cast members was really cool to her. And I think that's really, really neat that she was able to take that on and really just jump right into it. Now, of course, you can trade with the other guests in the park as well. But there's only one hard and fast rule relating to uh, guest-to-guest changes, and that's that no money can change hands during the trade. Guests asking for money or those accepting payment can be asked to leave the park or the trading location. Other than that, anything goes, and any pin is tradable. While trades with cast members are one-for-one trades, trades between guests can have no limits. There are some unspoken rules that kind of prevail, though. Uh, Primarily, look out for newbie traders and children. While some are trading for fun, others are not above taking advantage of those who are new to collecting. I've heard uh, of instances where a guest asked another guest to go in and purchase a pin in exchange for a pin on their lanyard. The value there is probably not in the favor of the person making the purchase, um, but they get what they want. So just kind of be aware of that if you're getting into pin trading. And again, another story. Um, My younger son was uh, really having fun trading, and he saw a person walking through the park with a lanyard who he actually thought was a cast member, and he asked to trade pins with her. She was really nice, and she let him look at her pins, and when he asked to trade, and her response was, well, what do you want to trade me for it? Uh, With a cast member, you can give them literally anything subject to the rules, Um, but in this case, the other guest wanted something interesting, perhaps something of value, uh, for the trade. He offered one that he had on his lanyard, and she liked it, and they completed the trade. And it was kind of cool because, you know, she looked at me first. Is it okay? And I'm like, yeah, sure. He can trade whatever he wants. It's fine. And uh, they made the trade, and it was, it was really cool. And that's the first time my kids have gotten engaged in a uh, guest-to-guest transaction, but I think my son is hooked, and he wants to go find other guests who have cool pins. Now, remember that in general, uh, that in either case, there's a common courtesy that's important. You want to remain calm and civil and then get to the pin you want. Or in other words... Be nice and play fair. Uh, Pin trading is a hobby and it's supposed to be fun. And that means no running, pushing, pointing, grabbing, or invading another trader's personal space. And maybe I should say, you know, eating, drinking, smoking, or flash photography. No, it just doesn't feel right. Um, Also, when trading with people from other countries who may not speak English, it's polite to slow down and make certain the trade is understood. It's also nice to tell the person a little about the pin you've traded as it makes for a friendlier exchange and gives a little history to the pin. And remember, always say thank you, even if you don't make a trade. That's just the polite thing to do, and especially with cast members. They're doing their job, and if you just say thank you, it's great. So that's the basic concept of pin trading. So you may be asking the question, where can I trade a pin? As I mentioned earlier, before 2002, there were some designated pin trading stations. Many of these still exist today. In Disneyland, you can find them in, the, uh, in Main Street. Uh, there's a pin cart in Town Square in a larger location with outdoor seating at the Disney Showcase. And a large selection is available on the Main Street Emporium. At Disney's California Adventure, uh, there are carts in several locations in the Hollywood Pictures back lot, in the pin-up pins cart. 
uh, in the Bay Area is the, uh, is the Loud Bang Pin Cart. And this is a super trader location. In downtown Disney at Disneyland, you'll find a large selection of pins in the wide world of Disney and at the downtown Disney pin cart on the pedestrian bridge. At Walt Disney World, the larger locations are the Magic Kingdom, Main Street Town Square, and the Expedition Hall. Epcot and the Future World Pin Central, the largest pin location on property near Spaceship Earth. It's a super pin trader location. And near Canada and the World Showcase. In the DM Studios, you'll find the pin station at the Hollywood Junction. In the Animal Kingdom has a large pin cart near, located near the island Mercantile in Discovery Island. Downtown Disney Marketplace, the World of Disney and Pleasure Island, and Downtown Disney West Side all have pin carts. There's also attraction-specific pins available in the gift shops of Disney Quest, the House of Blues, Planet Hollywood, and Cirque du Soleil. And don't forget about the specific pin merchandise location that's right across from Once Upon a Toy. Pin trading came to Tokyo Disneyland recently, but uh, has taken off in a big way. The park has two primary pin stations at Cosmic Encounter in Tomorrowland and Fantasy Gifts in Fantasyland. Pin trading on the high seas, is, uh, as I said, is now uh, happening on all of the Disney ships. All of the ships feature a large selection of pins, some specific to the ship, and so on. And there are pin trading events that come up all the time in the parks, at Downtown Disney, even, and even at the Disney stores. You should just ask a cast member if they know when the, event, the next event will be. A lot of times they'll give you a phone number to call and just check in. Um, they'll tell you it's usually on the first Tuesday of the month, so why don't you call on Monday and see if it's going to be happening that day. Now, kind of rounding out the discussion, I wanted to ask some of the most commonly asked questions that, uh, when you talk about pin trading. So what makes a good pin trade? A trade in which both traders get the pins they want and manage to have a good time while they're at it is a good pin trade. A pin trade is supposed to be fun, and both traders should be happy at the end. Pretty simple, right? What makes a pin valuable? It's completely subjective. To Mickey collectors, a pin featuring their favorite rodent is good. To some traders, any pin not already in their collection makes it good. As a rule, the more difficult a pin is to acquire makes it good. If a pin is old or rare or sold out, it's if it's an exclusive to a park or other venue or it was made and sold only to cast members or annual pass holders, then that may have, make it have value as well. So it's really up to you to decide what makes it valuable. Does anyone try to get them all? It's been tried, but with so many new pins designs available on a worldwide market almost weekly, it's virtually impossible to get every pin released in every venue for every division. The best advice is to specialize in a character, movie, park, attraction, or event that you like. Collecting every Mickey pin released at the Disneyland Resort is considerably easier and much less expensive than collecting every pin released in the Disneyland Resort. How can I get pins to trade? If you're unlucky enough not to live close to a Disney theme park, there are a couple of other ways you can get pins. If you live close to a Disney store, you can get pins that are released there. Every year, they release about 100 pin series to the stores. If you live close to a Disney character warehouse, you may be able to find pins for sale there. If you have friends or family that travel, you can always ask them to be your personal pin shoppers. And there's always the Internet and its myriad of auctions and secondary market sites. Some pins are also available from mail order from both the Disneyland Resort and the Walt Disney World Resort. You can call the Disney World Resort at 407-363-2000 and inquire. How can I display and store my pins? Some collectors keep their pins in bags or drawers while others frame and uh, frame them to enjoy them. Still others wear their favorites. There are various pin bags that are sold as well as glass for plexiglass. They're for covered display cases that keep the pins safe and protected. You can go out to a site called pinpicks.com and it's a great service that allows you to track your collection. So you can kind of put them into different folders or binders or bags that you want and then you can come back and you know see which ones you've got. And that makes it easier too when you go to the parks and you go, gosh, what which pins did I, did I have this one? 
my tip is I actually take some pictures of my kids' pins with my iPhone, and that way I have them there and I can look at them at any time when they're trading a pin. Do I have this monorail? Yeah, you have the blue one. And I kind of keep groupings of them so it's easier to find them. What we do is they keep them in a bag um, separated out by whatever category they like, and then they take a few that they like and they put them on display on a pin board so they're kind of out and they can see them. And then they have a few that they keep on their lanyard that they're willing to trade at any time. Who are the traders? Traders are as unique as the reasons for trading. They're all ages, from children to seniors. They come from all parts of the world and bring unique pins from their local Disney parks and stores. Some start out with a few souvenirs and suddenly find that they they like trading and they get into it. Other traders say things like, I knew about pin trading, but I consciously attempted not to get involved because I knew how much money I would be spending. But in 1999, we stopped at the Bell's Outlet and found some Disney pins for 99 cents in the character Mirror store, so I bought some. Later that day, we were at Epcot, so I began to trade pins with a cast member. The first pin I traded was this one, then I traded that one. It was so cool that the, at that moment, I was hooked. Why do they trade? Any pin trader will tell you, once you've started, it's hard to stop. Why? Well... One experience, one explanation can be found in the description of the pin trading as an interactive experience. It has a lot to do with its appeal because you have an opportunity to interact with someone, a cast member, another guest, and you're never at a loss for conversation. It's a great conversation starter. One person I read said, I love Disney, Disney pin trading. The pins are generally beautiful, well-made, and very collectible. I like the camaraderie, the people I meet, and the chase is fun. Uh, and finally, where can I learn more about pin trading? Knowledge is the key to making a good trade, and there are several ways you can learn about pins and how to trade them. If you're at a theme park, when the pin bug bites, there are pin trading seminars called Pin Talks, held by super traders at trading venues in the Disneyland Resort and Walt Disney World. There are also dozens of websites featuring pins, some for trade and for sale, several news boards, discussion boards, bulletin boards and fe- that feature information about pins and pin trading. Uh, there are collectible magazines, which offer articles and feature pins released by Disney properties and collectors and enthusiast clubs that feature Disney collectibles. And you can check out my show notes over at DisneyPodcast.net. And I have some links to some of the sites that are out there, um, as well as uh, some of the additional information that I've mentioned on here. So there you go. That's a look at Disney pins. If you haven't traded before but wondered about it, I hope you've, I've given you a sense of what it is and what it's all about. And if you're a casual trader or were interested in kind of getting started, I hope I've given you a little help in getting this hobby going. The way I see it, it's a relatively inexpensive way to collect something Disney-related, and they don't take up too much space, um, and they can be a lot of fun. And that's my podcast for this week. And remember, if we can dream it, we really can do it. Bye now. From all of us, thanks for taking a listen to the podcast today. If you're standing, please hold onto the handrails and stay clear of the doors until the show stops completely and the doors open. Ladies and gentlemen, please collect your personal belongings, watch your head and step, and take small children by the hand. As this concludes our journey, we hope that you enjoyed the show and that you drive home safely. Our thanks go to Doug at geekacres.net for his contributions to the show. And also to Craig for the original music you hear on the show. You can find Craig's music over at ReverbNation.com slash sound A. If you have questions, comments, or thoughts about the show, please feel free to contact Dave at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. Show notes and links to other great content on the web can be found at disneypodcast.net. Now, I will raise the safety bar, and a podcaster will follow you home! Ha 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 ha!